Okay, well, good morning. Um, it's my um, pleasure to be able to um, open uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which I'm really excited to do. Um, I have to say, it's not been an easy build-up to it. I've had uh, man flu all week, as you might be able to tell from my voice, and that's now spread on to the little man of the house as well. So um, it's been one of those kind of build-ups. But to be honest with you, it's one of those things where I sometimes, in a sort of twisted, bizarre sort of way, take it as a slight encouragement. If it's, um, if it's difficult getting there, there must be something that needs to be said. So I hope that um, kind of we open our hearts this morning and just prepare ourselves for God's word. And always, you know, as my prayer is that God's word remains and uh, that my words fade away quickly. So let's get hold of God's word, God's word this morning. Um, we're looking, as I said, at the book of Ecclesiastes. And before we really get into it, I'm just going to give you a bit of background to understand what's going on here. So the book of Ecclesiastes is, it has to be said, a really important book, but one of those books of the Bible that's usually kind of overlooked. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things that um, I always kind of um, remember Ben's phrase, the kind of coffee cup um, verses. You know, we pick the odd verse out of it, but we don't necessarily spend a lot of time there. And I'm really excited that we're going to be spending a decent amount of time in this book. Um, I'm not going to say how long. Um, going through it and getting to, uh, getting to grips with it as well. Now, the author of this book, would you mind just putting up the verses? All right. The author of this book, as we can see from the first verse, um, we can work out who it is um, straight away, because he says they're son of David, king of Israel. Now, there were lots of kings of Israel that kind of stem from David, um, but we're, we're kind of confident in saying that this is Solomon. Some would argue it might be another king, but it's kind of difficult to argue it's anyone other than Solomon, simply because this is wisdom literature, and he's responsible for writing other wisdom literature as well. Um, including Proverbs, and in fact, in, in chapter 12, not to um, kind of proceed where we're going, but um, he identifies himself as a collector of Proverbs. He said there, chapter 12, verse 9, not only was the teacher wise, but also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many Proverbs. So the person speaking to us here is certainly David. The title of the book in Hebrew is Koheleth, Koheleth which relates to two things, and they're both important things. The first thing is this. It's one who speaks publicly in an assembly. So in other words, a preacher, a teacher. Okay? That's kind of what the book is talking about, which gives us an indication as to where we're going. Secondly, it relates to one who is a penitent soul. One who is a penitent soul. In other words, somebody who's lost their way in the Lord and has come back to him later on. Now, if you know um, your Bible well and you know kind of um, uh, parts of Solomon's life, you'll know that you know, he started off really strongly with the Lord, but as he married um, and came to know women of, of different um, religions... He set up idols for them as well. And if you kind of read through Kings, there's not a, um, actually any reference to him repenting of those things before he dies. However, theologians would suggest that this is kind of what this book is. This is kind of Solomon towards the end of his life saying, look, um, you know, I got some of this stuff wrong, but I'm back on here with the Lord. So uh, again, a really important book for that reason. We've got some um, quite early references to um, uh, Ecclesiastes as well. I mean, the second century BC is one of the earliest um, written references we have. Obviously, it goes back far further than that, but it's been within Christian and, and, and wider Jewish doctrine for a very long time. Um, it's part of what we call, as I said earlier, wisdom literature. And there's lots of different books kind of in that category, Song of Songs, Proverbs as well. But essentially, this is a book of apologetics. Now, if you know me well, you know that's right up my street. Okay, that's the kind of stuff that I like to look at and kind of get to grips with. Apologetics is basically a set of arguments we make to defend or advance the Christian faith. Okay, so it's kind of where you kind of put down arguments to defend or advance different parts of Christianity. Uh, and in this book, um, as a result of that, we've got some big questions, big profound stuff 
that um, we're going to have to wrestle with, frankly. It's not always easy stuff that we're going to come across here. Um, and so it's, it's good that we have a chance as a church to sit down and kind of go through this stuff together. And finally, the reason why I love this book is because for me personally and for Caroline, it's a very personal book. On the inside of my wedding ring, uh, I can't get it off my finger anymore to show you, but um, <laughs> on the inside of my wedding ring, you will find Anne and Caroline's ECC 412, Ecclesiastes 412, which reads, A cord made of three strings cannot easily be broken. Uh, a call to Christian marriage. All of our marriages, of course, must be cords of three strings. You, your spouse, and the Lord. Um, so that's my prayer for all of us, that uh, our, our marriages are cords of three strings. But anyway... Let's get on with um, getting into verse 1 of chapter 1. We're going to read down to verse 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye has never enough of seeing, nor the ear of hearing. What has been done will be done again. What has been done will be... Oh, sorry. What has been will be again. What has been done will be again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already there a long time ago. It was there here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Let's just pray. Father, we just lift these words to you, and we ask that you would just open our hearts to you this morning. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us, and we pray in doing so, Lord, we would be changed, and we would be changed to be conformed more to you. In your mighty name, amen. So, as you can see in the first few lines, uh, many theologians refer to this as pessimism literature. And you can kind of see why. Meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity, it might say in your verses. It's not, in many ways, the most encouraging start, is it? Because you start reading, oh, really? Okay, all right, it's meaningless, everything's meaningless, that's fine. Um, (laughs) First of all, kind of the phrase itself, meaningless, meaningless. Now, when I got up this morning, I looked out the window and I could see frost on the ground, and I I thought, my goodness, it's very cold. It's extremely cold. And the reason why I could say that is because in English, we have what linguists call adverbs of degree. I'm able to explain something and how extreme it is by using words like very or extremely. In Hebrew, you don't have adverbs of degree, so you repeat things for emphasis. Okay? So in Hebrew, I wouldn't have got up and said, it's very cold. I would have said, it's cold, cold. I say it twice to emphasize the point. Okay, so in other words, what's being said here, it's meaningless, it's meaningless. He's repeating, he's emphasizing why or or what he's trying to say and how meaningless it is. So he's kind of really got something to say, he's kind of getting to grips with it. In Hebrew, this word is hebel, okay, hebel, and it means brevity or emptiness. So again, we're not off to the most positive start, but don't worry, it's going to turn around. Now, Solomon goes on to explain why he sees everything as meaningless, why everything is vanity, okay? And he gives a a few different examples. But before we get into them, we need to understand exactly what he's talking about here because he's not talking about life with the Lord, okay? You'll notice that in the examples that he gives, he doesn't say praying is meaningless. 
He doesn't say worship is meaningless. He doesn't say reading God's word is meaningless. There is nothing there that you would recognize as walking with the Lord that he describes as meaningless, nothing at all. And that's because he's describing the secular life. Okay, the secular life. That's what he's describing as meaningless. Now, we know this for two reasons. One, as I said, because there's nothing there that refers to the Christian walk as being meaningless. And two, because we have to put this in the wider context of God's word. And as we will see when we come to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 24, all the way through to chapter 3, 22, Solomon goes on to describe how satisfying life with the Lord is. Okay, so this is kind of like, so when I'm in school, those of you who know me know I'm a history teacher, when I'm teaching them to write a long argument, okay, an answer, what I say to them first is, okay, um, I want you to say, um, I want you to write an argument uh, against the statement, the First World War was a pointless waste of time, okay? And so they start writing it, but when I teach them how to write it, I say, but there's going to be arguments against that point, okay? So I want you to deal with those arguments first. So he's kind of setting it out that way. He's kind of saying, right, I'm going to tell people that um, life with the Lord is absolutely wonderful. Before I do that, I'm just going to point out that secular life is meaningless. He's kind of setting it out. He's getting you ready for this bit, for the next bit that's coming. So in a sense, we obviously, because of the constraints of time, we look at these first 11 verses together, and it is important that we do that. But don't distract it. Don't kind of take it away from the wider context. He's going to go on. He's going to tell us that life with the Lord is wonderful. He starts by going through different examples of creation here. He talks about the rising of the sun, for example. And it's worth noting that um, creation is actually incredibly important. Okay? He's talking about creation as being meaningless. It's vanity. But actually, it's incredibly important. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. So again, he's not necessarily describing creation as meaningless. He's not describing creation as vanity. He's using it as an example, as a metaphor for something here. The biggest example, the most extensive one that he uses, is the water cycle. Now, I'm in my, in my day job, I'm meant to be responsible for geography as well. I don't know much about it, but there's one thing that I can vaguely talk about, and that is the water cycle. Okay, so the water cycle goes a little bit like this. Okay, so the clouds rain on top of the mountain, and the water droplets go into the streams. And the streams flow down the... the don't laugh, this is how I, te- this is how I teach it. Uh, and the, the water st- goes into the streams, and the streams go into the wider rivers, and the rivers go into the seas. And then when it gets into the seas, the surface water is heated up, and it turns into warper, water vapor droplets, and it rises into the air, and it collects together as clouds, and when they're too heavy, they rain. And it's a cycle, and the whole thing starts again. Okay? Now, he's using that as an example here of the cycle of life. Okay? He's describing it as the cycle of life, a cycle that doesn't stop. Now, for the non-believer, for those without God in their lives, in many ways... It's always a cycle. It's a constant cycle. As you know, I, I run. Okay? I like to run, and I enjoy running. I really enjoy it. I know it sounds like a strange thing to enjoy, but I do genuinely enjoy running. I'm exhausted at the end of it, but I enjoy it when I'm doing it. But the thing with running is, it doesn't matter how far I run or how fast I run, I always want to run further and faster. It's enjoyable, but it never quite satisfies. Okay? If you go to the gym and you lift weights, okay, I do occasionally get down there, I have to be honest, um, it doesn't matter how big the weights are that you lift. It doesn't matter how much you can do it. It's enjoyable, but it's never going to ultimately satisfy because you always want to lift more weights, heavier weights. 
it's kind of the same with our lives um, in, in a broader sense as well. Um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to earn more money. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get a better job. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get a bigger house. But those things will never actually satisfy us because whenever we have more money or when we have the better job, when we have the bigger house, ultimately human nature kicks in and we want a, more money, a better job, a bigger house after that. There is something cyclical about the secular life that shows us that we are never actually satisfied. And what Solomon's doing here is he's trying to put that into context. He's using those as metaphors to describe that. And that's kind of juxtaposed by life in the Lord. In Psalm 107, it says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Life without God can never really be satisfied. It's only the Lord that can satisfy us completely. And so I suppose the question this morning is, do you know the Lord? Because if you don't, then satisfaction is right there in front of you. You've just got to reach out and ask the Lord to come into your life. In verse 8, he says something that I didn't really notice, if I'm honest, until the middle of the week. I was kind of, as as you do when you're preparing for these things, you read for it and read for it and read for it, and every now and then something new pops out at you. And it says, all things are wearisome. All things are tired. It strikes me as a slightly odd way to describe the sun. The sun going up and coming down. I don't think the sun gets tired in that way, does it? The water cycle, kind of droplets coming down. I won't describe it again. And going around. The water doesn't get tired, does it? It seems like an odd thing to describe creation as. And I can see that he describes labor in all of this. So kind of um, working. You get tired from that. But filling it in with creation doesn't kind of quite work. But... In a sense, it does, because all of creation, everything, has been affected by the fall of mankind. In Romans 8, uh, in verse 20, it says this, For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that all creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning. Creation has been groaning. Creation is tired. When Adam and Eve first sinned, the whole of creation, not just the future of humanity, but the whole of creation was affected by sin. And we can see that all of creation, all of nature is wonderful, it's amazing, but as we read earlier, it reveals its, and as we read earlier, it reveals its creator, but it's now also corrupt. It groans. It's weary. God has saved us, but he has other plans for this world. If you read the end of the book, Revelation 21, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So we have this, what we have of this world is to bring more people to know the Lord Jesus and little else. Our time here is exactly that. It's to bring people to know the Lord. This world isn't getting out of here. There's going to be a new one coming our way. We're going to get out of here with the Lord, as long as you know him and accept him and he's your saviour. This world isn't. That's why it groans. I just thought I'd point it out. Now, this is the kind of the bit that I want to get on to. This is the bit I want to spend some time on. If you've heard me preach before, you know I tend to bring in these verses where I can. Verse 9 there, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Now, Scripture and prophecy are both cyclical. 
Okay? There are cycles within them. Um, I'm going to give you an example. It's not a nice example, but it's just an easy example for me to explain, so I'm going to go with it. Um, two brief verses. Okay? In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul um, makes this prophetic reference. He says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will come when rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And adding to that, um, Jesus in Mark 13 said, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, these are both prophetic references talking about the Antichrist and talking about him standing in the temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Okay? Now, one of the things when you're dealing with um, prophecy is that you have to understand there are different schools of thought with prophecy. Okay? When it comes to end-time prophecy, there's three major ones. There's something called historicism, something called preterism, and something called futurism as well. Okay? Historicism holds that any kind of prophecy was fulfilled way back in the past. Okay? Preterism doesn't attach much um, prophetic significance to much, but anything it does say would say it happened around the first century. And futurism says, well, look, anything that's been prophesied is going to happen way across in the future. Okay? There are three schools of thought. And the problem is that most theologians would say they kind of butt up against each other. All right? They kind of, one person says, no, it happened all that time ago. And one person says, no, it's not going to happen until way in the future. And so sometimes those arguments, those disagreements, they can cause us to be a little bit unwilling to kind of engage with that type of um, Bible study, understandably, because we don't want to cause arguments with each other. And that's fair enough. But the point I'm going to make is that actually, if we have an understanding that Scripture is cyclical, it goes in cycles, then a lot of that misunderstanding can very quickly be put away. Let me explain that a bit more. I've just given you those two prophecies, okay? So there's going to be a guy that comes along, he's going to stand in the Holy of Holies, and he's going to call himself God, okay? The temple in Jerusalem. Now, some would argue, the historicists would argue, that in uh, 168, 167 BC, Antiochus IV of the Seleucid Empire, um, who was um, a very odd character, he was um, kind of overseeing Israel at the time, or he subjected it, and the Jewish people rebelled, and he went back to Jerusalem, and he made war against them. And when he was making war against them, what did he do? He sacked the temple, he went into the temple, he went into the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest should go. He then decided to slaughter a pig on um, the altar there, and he set up a statue to Zeus while he was there as well. Now, the historicists would say, okay, there's that prophecy fulfilled, and that kind of makes sense. However, if you go back through history, what you will also find is that in 66-65 BC, um, the Emperor Pompey attacked Jerusalem. He also went into the Holy of Holies, the only place where um, the uh, high priest should go. Again, if you look through history, you'll find that Emperor Caligula in 40 AD, not long after um, Jesus, um, went and built a statue for himself in metal and ordered that be set up in the Holy of Holies. Thankfully, he died early and that um, didn't happen. But then a few years later, another Roman general, Tacitus, also um, made sure that in the temple itself, flags, Roman um, standards were set up again in uh, fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because the thing is that all of these schools of thought are, in a sense, correct. The historicists are correct. When they look back at Antioch, they said, look, here's that prophecy that you were giving. Um, it kind of relates to what Daniel was saying as well. And look, it's way back here. And the preterists are also correct, because like, here are these guys around the first century, and they're doing these things, and they're fulfilling the prophecy. And look, it kind of be, 
Correct. And the futurists are saying, well, look, actually, no, none of this stuff is going to happen until the future, and that will be correct. See, the thing with um, prophecy is that it's cyclical in nature. It's a bit like two friends in a cave, one person standing at the front and one person standing at the back of the cave, and the guy at the front of the cave wants to shout to his friend, and he shouts, and it echoes. And eventually those echoes will catch up to the friend at the back of the cave, and he'll hear it. Okay? That's how prophecy works. It's cyclical. The echoes are the kind of uh, smaller fulfillments of that prophecy, and the hearing of it is the ultimate fulfillment. That's how prophecy works. It's cyclical. There's nothing new. Okay? There's nothing new. Even prophecy itself, it works in that way. God has established it and set it up in that way. Let's take it a bit further. Not only is prophecy um, cyclical, scripture is cyclical. Now again, apologies if you've heard me speak before, I like to emphasize this point because the thing with this point is if we get hold of it, then our understanding of scripture is a lot better. Okay, so kind of um, bear with me. Um, If you think about scripture, if you're reading through it, my daughter said to me recently, um, I came into the room and she was reading, I think it was Numbers, and I was like, wow, that's a, that's a big book to read, Emily. You know, well done for that. She said, well, I just started at the front, and I just kept reading. I was like, great. Okay, that works for me. But if you do that, if you read through, well, what happens? Well, you start in Genesis, and you're kind of reading through it, and okay, where, and you kind of get to Kings. You're like, where is this story going? What, what? And suddenly you get to the gospel. You're like, oh, we're kind of back at the start again. Isn't this what I read in Genesis? And then you kind of start reading through, and you get through the epistles and everything else. You get to Revelation. You think, oh, hang on. Isn't this what we had in the Gospels? It is in itself cyclical. For example, in Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good. In John, it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In Revelation, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its light. There's light, and then there's light, and then there's light. It cycles, and it cycles, and it cycles. In Genesis, God dwells with men, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Revelation, God's dwelling place is now among men, and he will dwell with them. He dwells with men at the start, he dwells with men in the middle, he dwells with men at the end. It goes in a cycle. That's how scripture works. That's how God has set it up. But the question, of course, is why? Why has God set up his word to be cyclical in that way? We'll come to that bit in a minute, sorry. Um, So scripture repeats, but why? Firstly, there's two reasons, I suppose. Firstly, because as humans, we need constant reminders. I don't know about you, but I always need to remind myself, not just um, in terms of my walk with the Lord, but in daily life, I need constant reminders about what I should be doing. But if you read scripture from the beginning to the end, oh, sorry, I just said that. Um, There is a cyclical nature to scripture. We are constantly reminded of our sin and the need for God's forgiveness and that God has made a way for us. We read through through scripture and we need a daily reminder, a constant reminder of this. We need to be reminded that God is about saving his people. Secondly, we need scripture to be cyclical because our daily lives are cyclical. In a sense, our walk with the Lord is cyclical. I remember many years ago, um, we were at a church and I was part of the worship band there and... um, the worship leader prayed a very simple but a very honest prayer, and it's always stuck with me, okay? He said, Lord, by the time I leave the front door to the time I arrive at the car, and he had a driveway, um, he said, I've already got so much to be sorry for. Kind of always stuck with me, and that's true, isn't it? We get stuff wrong all the time, okay? That's kind of how, um, 
how humanity works. And so we constantly, every day, there is almost a kind of cycle of we get something wrong and we need God's forgiveness with it. And so scripture is cyclical to remind us of that cycle. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, okay? Now, God is a God of victory. He's a Lord of victory. He changes us, okay? He brings victory in our lives. We're not the same people that we were before we were saved. I'm not saying that just because... um, you know, life is cyclical, it goes in cycles, that you're never going to break out of those sin patterns that you're in. Of course, God brings victory. But at the same time, we are human, and we get stuff wrong all the time, and we constantly need forgiveness. So scripture is set up in a cyclical way because we are in a cycle where we get stuff wrong and we need God's forgiveness. And he's reminding us of that in the way that it constantly revolves in a cycle. Okay, now... Going back to those last three verses, I was really excited when I got this first one because I thought, here we go, I've got a chance here to talk about some history. Now, um, you might think I get fed up with doing that because I have to do that all the time, but tragically, no. I like to talk about history. This is the stuff that kind of gets me going. Um, However, could you mind putting up that next slide? Sorry. The way that we view time is not always the same. We think it is because we sit in our nice little Western world bubble and we think that everybody sees the same things as us. But people view time and they view history in different ways and it's dependent on lots of different factors like culture and things like that. Um, For example, um, if you are on top of a mountain, let's let's use this as a strange example to start off. If you're on top of a mountain, you will experience time very slightly slower to the people who are um, further down the mountain. Okay, so time might be experienced slightly different for a start. It depends what side of eternity you're on as well. For example, in Psalm 90, it says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day has just gone by or like a watch in the night. If you are with the Lord, then you are outside of the concept of time and so it will be viewed very, very differently as well. However, history, I'll come to this bit in a minute, don't worry, I'm just going to leave it up there. History can be quite cyclical. Okay, it can go in cycles. Solomon states there, few remember it. Okay, Harry Truman, the American president, once said, there is nothing new in the world except the history you do not know, and he was quite right. As a society, as British people, we tend to think that we're quite connected to our past. Now, as a history teacher, I'm not absolutely convinced that's true. Okay, so a little bit of interaction. I wouldn't normally do this, but someone shout out, what is... Uh, the biggest, it's a big war, okay, there's a hint, big war in the past that caused the highest percentage of British casualties. Go on, shout it out. Big war. I see what you did there. World War One. any others? Go on, don't be shy. I'm not going to mark you on it. Second World War, yeah, I kind of, that's the two big ones that I thought people would say. It's not, it's the English Civil War. It killed 3.5% of the English population. It killed 40% of the Irish population. It was a big killing war, okay? Um, We think we're connected to our past, but actually we're only connected to the bit that's fairly recent. Um, If we think about our ancient past, that kind of connection to it is even more strained, okay? Let's keep it on a a local level now. Harlow, okay? Harlow, you might not realise, is or has an incredibly important uh, past, especially as a religious centre, Okay, hands up who's heard, and I suspect most of you have heard that there's a Roman temple site in Harlow. Okay, oh, not most of you. Oh, well, okay. So over that end of town, just a stone's throw, there is a, a, it's really only a depression in the ground now, but there's a Roman temple, okay? 
and it's an incredibly important um, area if you listen to some archaeologists. What most people don't realize is that that temple was built on a previous Celtic temple. What was there for at least 500 years before that and was seen again as a major religious area, uh, major religious um, site, sorry, within the area. And what most people don't know is that was built upon an even older barrow, a place where people would come to, build, uh, to um, uh, bury their dead and cremate them. Okay? So actually, even our local history, we're not even sure whether, how we're connected to the local area in that sense because our idea of the past is so strained from what we had recently. Let's do one more. Okay, one more um, uh, uh, interaction. Here we go. Um, I'm going to describe something. I want you to tell me what it is. All right, so here we go. Um, European dictator, okay, um, took over most of Europe and got trapped trying to um, invade Russia. Exactly. Most people shouted Hitler. Somebody shouted the right answer. Well done. What was it? Napoleon. Absolutely. So you see, history goes, the point I'm making, I'm not trying to test you. No, this isn't a history lesson. But I'm trying to make the point that history goes in cycles. I described something there that we would perfectly well see as the Second World War. Actually, it was something that happened over 100 years before that in the Napoleonic Wars. History goes in cycles. And I have to say, um, I've been slightly reassured by this. This week. Now, what I'm going to share now, I'm not sharing to give any sort of um, political point. I don't care what your politics are. I hope you don't care what mine are. I'm not going to share any political view whatsoever. However, last weekend, you, like me, might have been glued to the television and looking at what's happening in Parliament and the fury over Brexit and is there going to be a general election? Are they going to have a vote of confidence? Everything else. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, good grief. You know, let's just bring this to an end. Um, you know, I was worried about it, I have to say. And then I taught a lesson to my year 10s on Tuesday, and I haven't worried about it since. And the reason I haven't worried about it since is I suddenly realized that this is just, as Shirley Bassey once wisely sang, a little bit of history repeating itself. Okay? Let me give you an example. In the 1500s, England left Europe. The country was divided. 50% wanted to stay, 50% wanted to go. Uh, it disrupted our trade, and we had to end up trading with different countries as well. Does that sound familiar? Yeah? We called it the Protestant Reformation rather than Brexit. But exactly the same thing. All we're seeing is history repeating itself. I haven't worried about it since I realised that. I can give you another example if you want. 410 AD. It's kind of an inverse Brexit. The Europeans left us this time. And uh, Rome left. Again, the country was divided. There were Romano-British populations who wanted to stay. There was the native Britons who wanted them to go. It affected our trade because we couldn't no longer trade with Europe. It's just history repeating itself. History repeats. That's what it does. Because there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah? Sorry, that was a bit full. Um, however, history can't simply be considered as a Greek theory. Okay, as I said, um, it depends on where you are in the world and what point in history and how you view history. The Greeks viewed it that way. It's a circle, a cyclical. They saw things like the seasons. And they said, well, history just must be one continuous cycle going back and forth all over itself. Okay? That's how the Greeks viewed it. And so some theologians have kind of looked at these verses of Solomon, and it's raised eyebrows amongst them because they look at this and they say, this seems a remarkably um, Greek perspective on things to actually say that things are cyclical. Because in Hebraic thought, in Jewish thought, um, history wasn't cyclical in the slightest. It had cycles within it, but it was linear. It was a timeline. It was the thing down the bottom. It started at one point, and it finished at the end. Now I'm going to say to you, in a sense, it's a little bit of both. 
Okay? There are cycles in history. I've just given you demonstrations that history does repeat itself a little bit. But the problem with the Greek idea is it never goes anywhere. And it is going somewhere. God started it at one point. He's going to end it at another point. There might be cycles in between it, but God has started it, and he's going to bring it to an end as well. It can't just be seen as a theory. It is actually going somewhere. Now, these different points that we've looked at, the cyclical nature of life, the cyclical nature of scripture, the cyclical nature of history, um, are brought together. Solomon brings together the examples of the vanity of secular life and moves that onto a grander scale to the pointlessness of history always repeating and never arriving. The point, of course, is much like the different approaches to time. We're getting somewhere, however slowly we are, and what is the end of it will be one of two things. It will either satisfy us or it will put that satisfaction out of reach. Creation repeats. It groans in its corrupted form and its cycles still reveal the Lord and the meaningless of secular life. That's how creation's been set up. It's been set up so that we know that only the Lord can satisfy us, even though life will not. Scripture repeats and reflects to remind, um, remind us that our walk with the Lord needs constant um, maintenance, if I can put it that way. We need to keep short accounts with God. We need to come before him regularly to ask for his forgiveness. And history repeats to show us that we're not unique and that God has a plan and that a day is coming that God has prepared and has chosen for us. Isaiah 46 reads as follows. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. God has set the future ahead of us. And I suppose the choice that we have is those two things that you can see on the screen behind us. We can get caught up in a cycle of life that will never satisfy, that will never bring us anywhere, that will never take us anywhere. Or we can choose the line at the bottom, which is the line to the Lord. He's taking history a certain point. I started off on the front screen there by saying, where is history going? It's a very simple answer. It's going to the Lord. Because he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And at that end, at that point where he takes his people with us, the choice before us is a simple one. Will we be those who Lord looks on and takes with him to eternity, or those that he does not know and put to one side? I don't know about you, but I want to be on the first list and be there with the Lord forever. I'm just going to bring us to a close for prayer, and then I'm going to hand back over. Father, we just want to bring your word to you, and we ask that um, you would continue to shape this word in our minds and our hearts over the coming days and weeks. We pray that you would bless us, and that you would cause us to come before you daily to seek your forgiveness, and that you would cause us to be on the right path in history. In your name, amen.